Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. Those of you who are following our Substack newsletter, which you can find at verticaldevelopment.education, might have read a recent article I wrote exploring some of the prevailing and, in my opinion, unhelpful myths that float around in the developmental consulting space. One such myth is that adult, vertical development, is exclusively an individual journey. According to this myth, people can be supported to develop into later stages regardless of their context. In extreme versions of this myth, it's even suggested that some recipe might exist to shift whole cohorts of leaders into later stages and thus impact organizational culture. While this myth has been actively dismissed by all established developmental researchers I know of, it's still surfacing in commercial conversations. It leads some organizations and consultants to put the onus of change on the individual while ignoring the complex contexts which impact how individuals behave. This individualistic view of development has drawn significant amount of criticism from researchers and consultants in the complexity science or systems space who advocate for a view of change that favors a systems perspective. These people sometimes even dismiss the individual perspective as irrelevant, thus inhabiting the opposite pole in what turns out to be a polarity. My 15 years of experience as both facilitator and coach, working with both organizations in groups, large and small, as well as individually with hundreds of leaders, have shown me that neither of these extreme views seem to be the full picture. System and individual seem to be inextricably connected, and in my experience, trying to influence one in isolation from the other is futile. So I have set out to both explore this myth of development as function of the individual in more detail and seek to invite an alternative perspective that can both illuminate the role of the system while also honoring the individual. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to dialogue with a guest whose work I deeply admire and who I believe holds precious wisdom at the intersection of these two fields, individual development and systemic change. Joan Lurie is the founder and CEO of Organomics, an organization strategy and leadership development consultancy she established in 2008 to help leaders and organizations develop, perform and transform. Joan is a Fulbright Scholar with a master's degree in adult education and a second master's degree in developmental psychology. She works with boards, executives and leadership teams to help them develop systemic intelligence and design and lead complex adaptive change in their organizations with turnaround results. The organomics methodology Joan created is a novel theory and practice for organizations which integrates strategy, systems thinking, complexity and adult development theory. It provides an ecological map for leaders to navigate the unique challenges they face and be fit for the current complex landscape they are in. Joan will talk more about what the ecology that she refers to is and why having this awareness of belonging to a broader system is actually so important, particularly in today's context. Together we'll explore what it means to take a systems perspective on development, what other lenses beyond the individual are worth exploring, and what might all of us, leaders, HR experts, 
consultants, facilitators, coaches, researchers learn from honoring this polarity of individual and system and consciously navigating it instead of favoring one pole at the exclusion of the other. I can't wait to hear what you all think, so please share your reflections in the comments section on the episode page on Substack at verticaldevelopment.education. And if you're finding value in these conversations and have yet not subscribed to our Substack newsletter, please do and join our growing community of learners and curious explorers of human development. So with all that said, here is Joan Lurie. Joan, welcome on The Developmental. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here too. I, I feel this is uh, this is one one more of a nerd's uh, dream fulfilled <laughs> um, because I've been I've been following your work for a good few years uh, and I feel there are so many fascinating intersections um, between the systems perspective and the more individual perspective in adult development. So I've reached out inviting you with the intention for us to explore these intersections um, in a way where we turn the theory into lived experience yeah that makes so much sense and i think we need more and more exploration and dialogue about these interweavings and intersections which are helpful um so yeah really honor the work that you're doing in this space thank you alice yeah thanks joan likewise maybe if i if i zoom out a little bit um just to uh, you know recount how how i've discovered your work and what made me curious and maybe even the broader context of the field right now that i feel asks for more dialogue and more cross pollination um so i was i was participant in a workshop where you were introducing ergonomics and and the the perspective that you take on organizations as systems and what what does it look like to create a, a more conscious maybe system this is my work my word maybe i'm not sure if it's the word you would use but for me it was oh joan is talking about how organizations are growing up uh, in a sense and i'm interested in how individuals grow up and individuals never grow up in isolation so that that really sparked my curiosity as to where the intersection is between these two and the more I've spent time in this space, the more I see this almost polarization between people who favor a systems perspective on human development and organizational and cultural development and so on, and people who are very, very interested in the individual perspective. And at times, it seems like they're at odds with each other. Mm. Um, and I, I keep having this sense of, oh, we're missing a bigger picture here. If it's a polarity, maybe there is a higher perspective we're missing. So I would love to know how you got to the discovery of systems, because I know you came at it from a developmental psychology background. So what, what drew you to the other pole? How, how did that come about for you? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I think it, um, in some ways they emerged for me simultaneously. Um, mm. I was doing a um, master's in adult education and development in at Wits University in Johannesburg. Um, and in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and mostly I was looking at um, obviously adult development theory, but in the context of apartheid where most 
adults in South Africa hadn't had the opportunity to go to school, or if they had, it was very limited, like they only went up to primary schooling. But we were moving into, a, um, we were going through a transition into post-apartheid South Africa, and more and more in um, organizational context and in the political and social context, it, there was obviously a requirement for redress and an opportunity for adults to um, get more edu education, but they couldn't go back to school, obviously. So what I was very curious about at the time was um, how are adults able to learn um, and progress without going back to school and was looking at the union movements, adult night schools, how organizations and businesses were accountable and responsible for some of that. And one of the key things was that adults um, were using children's books, whether they were in union context or organizations or night schools, churches, things like that. And that was deeply troubling to me that adults had to learn with children's material. And so I started doing my research into what would an adult curriculum look like? And the opportunity came where a very visionary CEO was doing a transformation in his organization. And he gave me space to research um, what an adult curriculum might look like and how we can use organizations as contexts for adult development and mm -hmm. education. And so began my um, exploration of how to create that, what that would look like. And whilst I was doing that research for my master's, um, I was invited to be part of a transformation team that were looking at breaking down racism in the company, preparing it for a post-apartheid South Africa. And so I got involved in doing the culture change work simultaneously. And that was then intriguing to me because I was looking at how to use organizations as context for adult learning mm -hmm. and adult development. And then I got hooked into this thing of, well, how do you change organizational culture? And so the two streams came together in this context, in this beautiful, you know, um, interplay between the two. And so I got really curious about these questions around how do we use organizations as context and containers for development? How do we help organizations change? Um, and as um, part of that, how can organizations be used as context for change in the wider kind of political and social context? So those three questions are ones that interweave very powerfully for me and have, you know, since that time, absolutely intrigued me. As part of that um, work, the CEO, a couple of years into that work, also knew that he had to change the operating model of the company and merge four businesses into one. And he brought out um, uh, Irving Borwick to work with us, who had been exploring the application of systems theory and systems work based on Gregory Bateson's work, family systems uh, work, etc., into applying that into organizational context. And so he came to work with us um, and he had developed um, an application of systems which was coming out of kind of more um, Bateson, biological, Maturana, Varela, um, those kind of traditions 
Um, and some family systems work, but not doing therapy and not doing family systems in organizations, but he had reinvented it. And that opened my eyes to mm. a completely new way of understanding organizations as complex systems and doing change in organizations that is not individual, not psychological, not um, therapeutic, but rather really looking at the system of the organization and shifting that. And as part of that, um, the I had the opportunity then to go and do, I got a Fulbright and got an opportunity to go and do a master's um, in developmental psych. And I looked at how to shift people's meaning making from lineal, from more lineal analytical binary into more systemic, uh, relational, um, being able to see and make sense of the world in this very different, more abductive way. Um, and I used a piece of the work that we'd been doing in this company in South Africa as the context for research. So yeah, that's a bit of how my story and the interweavings began. I love I love how we we end up doing the work and the work is doing us in a sense. <laughs> um, and and it, it yeah, your your backstory resonates so powerfully for me because I'm originally from Romania and have you know grown up in the last decade of communism and then in the post-communist era. And there was a before and after where the external environment completely shifted and the whole of society as an organism had to adapt. And then for me, it was always a question of how do individuals actually adapt when the whole world has completely changed around them and what serve them up until December last year, literally, if I think December 1989 is no longer serving them now. And then how how does this interweaving between individual adaptation and systemic adaptation actually um, occur? So, and I think in a sense, we're, we're, we're seeing this now after the pandemic again and again, like this whole world is shifting and the system is shifting. And then Yes. What does that interweaving look like? And I'm, I have so many questions that are, are popping up, but I, I'm curious, what, how do you see this interweaving happening? I mean, how do you, yeah, what, what have you learned really? Maybe that's the best question to start with as you've started to study how systems shift uh, and individuals become and meaning making in the individual shifts. What have you learned about that interweaving? Mm. So much. It's, it's a, a big, big question. <laughs> I think one of the key things um, that um, that I was sort of, my eyes were opened up to, let me put it that way, um, was a different conceptualization of what is an organization at that time. Um, that an organization is a system, is a complex system, and that an organization is in some ways a network of roles, role relations, implicit and explicit rules of engagement that have come to be between different members or parts of the system. And so that was transformational for me not to see organizations simply as a set of technical structures and processes or as a collection of people 
who are in interpersonal relationship, but this kind of third additional lens, which was to see organizations as complex networks. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, um, a kind of linked idea that the Borwicks introduced me to was an idea that, you know, we are, when we're in a system, an organizational system, we connect into that system by virtue of the role that we contract to take up and by role i don't mean the technical job role that we contract for of course there is that but also the systemic roles that we get invited in to play and that we take up in the network of role relations and one of the key ideas about this is that we immediately form as individuals in organizational systems, when we connect and join with them, we immediately form a set of assumptions, a mental map of the system, Mm -hmm. the network of relations, how it's working, how it should work, where we fit in it, our role in it. And mostly that, um, and after doing this work for 30 years and inviting people into drawing that map, how they see it um i know that we all form those maps it's like if we land in a new city or in a new suburb or in in the jungle um wherever we are we form a map in our minds we orient to um as you know where we where we are and that kind of orientation that form of mapping um is also happening in organizational territories, in organizational systems and contexts. But mostly individuals don't know that they are- It's an unconscious map. In the main, it is it, it is not visible to us. Yep. Um, so there's kind of an interesting kind of move that happens when we start knowing that we hold a map. That's a kind of first move to hold more as object. Um, so we no longer simply navigate the organization and our world through the map as a filter, but we know we have it. So that creates the opportunity for us to stand back from the map with some curiosity and discover how am I, what map am I holding? Yeah. What does my map look like um, of the system in which I am a part? And um, the second is to test whether that map is 100% accurate. Yeah. You know, I think the beautiful thing about what Kozybski said was the map isn't the territory. We are constructing our maps um, and they're not necessarily the territory, but we tend to assume that our maps are the territory um, that we're navigating. And, we also tend to assume that they're true and that others hold the same maps and that others should, um, if they don't, they should. Yeah. Um, So it is a map of the system and ourselves in it that I'm talking about quite specifically. It could, we do hold maps obviously and constructs of other territories and other, um, you know, contexts, but I'm specifically referring to the maps that we are holding of the organizational systems we are in or the systems that we are a part of more broadly, um, our family systems, you know, um, our our social systems, etc. And so it's important um, what I discovered and how this sort of came to be is that 
the map in some ways informs the territory because it the informs map... our behavior what we assume to be true would inform our behavior right absolutely it informs yeah. our behavior but it also informs the system and the territory and that's where this kind of interplay this dance comes to be because how we are framing how we are constructing that territory as individuals informs the outcome what emerges and mm -hmm. to what degree our maps the individual maps are coherent or not informs the territory and the system and the, so we're in this beautiful kind of dynamic dance between constructing the maps informing the system and the system holding a collective kind of assumption about the roles and how the rules of engagement and the contracts that should be and that informing individual maps mm -hmm. so there's this kind of very important continual dynamic of informing um each other around um getting this kind of emergent outcome for how things are yeah organizations so would you say just taking my my understanding here that that the collection of these mostly unconsciously held maps in a sense forms organizational culture it's like the intricacy that that what i assume to be true about i don't know who holds power here what's expected of me what is said versus actually expected which is often not exactly the same thing all of those all of that collection of beliefs of individuals and then the collectively held beliefs then the the interweaving of those would that be where culture emerges in 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 this perspective yeah so culture will from my perspective and from a more complex systems perspective culture emerges from this kind of continual dynamic patterning that is taking place right. between the members or subsystems or parts of the organizational system um, and how they are in continual construction of, mm -hmm. of each other yes absolutely it is from those complex interactions that culture emerges and i talk about seven culture myths because i think in organizations what has come to be held deeply is that what drives people's behavior is their values um, and and their styles and their preferences and that and organizational values and I think that is a kind of mythical assumption that has been deeply held for too long and we need to disrupt it because mm -hmm. in fact behavior and culture emerges from this network of interactions and relations as much more so I believe than from a set of values that is held either individually or collectively yeah and if we if by value we mean the spouse values the ones that we write on the walls and we kind of want to adhere to as principles but then in actuality quite often we're not embodying those values in our behaviors which I think is an ongoing story we see yeah yeah, and, and often that incoherence is obviously a, a big part of the, the problem. Yeah. Where would you say that the the developmental or adult development in the individual sense plays a role in how people construct these mental maps, Joan? Well, I think they are um they are connected. Um so I think that where 
people's sort of sense making and meaning making about self will inform the maps that they hold about the system and their place in it and what the rules of engagement are and what is required of them. Um, and I think that's a very important um, thing for us to understand is that those um, where kind of people's meaning making are about self um, will inform the maps and therefore inform the system, but equally how the systemic, the systemic assumptions about the roles people should play and how they should behave informs where people will be pulled into development. Yeah. So again, it's this very, um, you know, circular dance. Between Relationship. The two. Yeah, they are Wait. in complex interrelationships. I'd love to if you if you'd like to maybe dive dive a little bit deeper on this on this interrelatedness and we were touching on it before we started the recording about the gravitational pull of culture um and it's something we talk a lot about in the developmental space and in particular I can think of Val say who's uh, you know work on fallback informs a lot of our understanding of how people actually don't show up as their um measurable like their full developmental capacity uh, it's one thing to test somebody and assess them as potentially operating at a certain stage and it's a whole different thing to see that person in day-to-day -day interaction in an organizational context and they might not show up as that mature self that they are capable of and valerie talks about the gravitational pull of culture as one element that you know puts people into fallback or or you know um elicits behaviors that are not aligned with how that person might show up in an ideal context. Um, and, and quite often when we look at post-conventional leaders in particular, uh, there's this term in the research, redefiners in hiding, people who have the capacity to question, to reflect, to inquire into the system, but they show up as more, you know, black and white, expert kind of uh, driven mindset because that's what the organization expects of them. So how do you illuminate those <laughs> those threads when when you go into an organization and work with a team? Yeah. How does that play out? I mean, you know, obviously I have the adult development lens and I'm often applying it myself to making sense of and understanding, you know, how people are making sense um, generally about the problems that they're facing, but also about themselves in the in the context um, that they find themselves in, how they make meaning about that. Um, but I don't often necessarily even um, introduce ideas of adult um, development theory and um, because I in some ways don't know that it's necessary. Yep. Um, I, I do think that it's important to be aware of where there is a kind of matching or mismatching potentially um, and how that incoherence can be problematic but often most of my work at the systems level is to help um, systems whether that is a system of two um, you know uh, or a system of seven a team or a system um, of a hundred, a division, or whether it's the whole organizational system. A lot of my work is based on this idea that it's very helpful for the system to step back from itself 
and be able to observe itself from a second order position. And one of the practices that um, I introduce is this idea that let's try and step back and observe the system as you're seeing it and describe it as you're seeing it, knowing that your description is only a description. Yep. And the invitation is to individuals to share their descriptions in a neutral way, not to, um, you know, ask the question, what's wrong here or what's the problem here, but simply to invite people into observation and to sharing their descriptions with one another mm -hmm. and to coming to kind of a shared sense of whether their descriptions are more similar or more different. And one of the techniques that I use with that is I invite people to share their observations as hypotheses. And so what this does as a practice is it invites people into description, which is um, hypothetical. Yeah, which is actually this is my takes way a bit of the heat out of of diagnosing or feeling like you're labeling. Right. The system in some way. Out, it takes out the analytical diagnostic component. Let's look for what's working well, what's working not well. And then it invites people immediately. Um, you know, that kind of question invites people into an analysis, looking for root cause, looking for what the problem is and fixing. What this alternative work is inviting people into observation of how it is. No, the question isn't what's working, what's not working. Rather, the question is, how is the system functioning at this point in time? What are you observing? What are you noticing? And so the invitation, if we link back to role, is not to invite people into expert, into fixer, into diagnostician. The invitation to leaders is to step into role of discoverer, into role of learner, into role of observer, more from a neutral place to begin. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that invitation into role of explorer, discoverer, um, stepping back from observing their own meaning making, observing their own hypotheses, putting those out for testing, that is a very powerful subject-object move that is being set up in the context of a team, of a division, of a whole organization. And many of my ergonomics practices are invitations into that space. Yeah. And I think what's so liberating about that is that it invites people out of being stuck in their own constraints around how they're viewing the world how they're viewing the world together and separately and to start building interconnectivity and interrelational meaning making um, an ability to be able to hold and see distinction mm -hmm. um, and a whole lot of practices which are not individual they're actually practices that we are inviting the system into and i believe that doing that work will in some ways invite individuals or does invite individuals into that place, but not from a teleological improve, grow you into some, you know, bigger you in an adult development sense. I don't even have to talk about that because yep. the purpose is different. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and at the end of the day, as long as you are ongoingly making object that which you were subject to before, growth is happening. You don't even have to necessarily create a set of boxes to kind of determine, you know, what's, what's the name for this, wherever we are now. I, I am curious though, Joan, to explore with you what, what, you know, how are you noticing people, maybe to give a bit of context to that question, something that I'm really interested in, fascinated by is the role of emotions in, in developmental, un, in the developmental unfolding, which is something that in traditional developmental research is not that much explored uh, as a thing. We, we talk about subject object shifts more as a cognitive thing. You know, you realize you see something that you weren't seeing before. Um, but what I found in my research and also in my practice of facilitation is that where we get hung up a lot is the difficult emotions that arise when our worldviews are being challenged, even by ourselves, even through well-meaning inquiry, I discover that what I believe, I, I'm, I'm even imagining, you know, if you realize that the role you've created for yourself or the projection of wh what you think that role is, you're kind of starting to see, oh, that actually isn't what it is it's something else there's cognitive dissonance that kicks in and with that comes emotion and what i found was that when people lean into that difficult emotion with curiosity that's when further curiosity and further reflection is unlocked but when they don't there seems to be a suck stuckness setting in where we kind of externalizing the problem or you know it's like we're not People don't seem to lean into a process of discovery that challenges their worldviews unless they're supported to hold space for the nasty emotions that pop up. So I'm curious from your perspective, yeah, how does that, what do you notice about that and how that plays out? Mm. It's such a great question. I mean, I, um, I think one of the things that I notice, like I had, um, I've had a few of these examples in the last couple of weeks. As people discover that um, what is happening in, as you, I suppose, as you introduce this idea that, um, that you are in a role in a system and that often um, people's upset or um, noise or conflict between people which feels deeply personal is actually about um, a systemic incoherence around how we're making assumptions about roles rules of engagement the the contract between us um, often because people don't have that sense making lens the attribution when noise emerges is that it's personal Mm -hmm. um, they're upset with me, they don't like me, um, they're judging me. Um, and people I feel get pulled back into their smaller selves when that starts to happen. They It's threatening. It's a threatening it's, feeling. It's, it feels threatening. They feel like um, they're not showing up well. They think the problem is them. They feel like the problem is being made personal or the attribution is the problem sits with another person or the problem is between those two people, a lack of trust, a lack of respect, like the meaning making is interpersonal and it feels quite individual um, about me. Mm -hmm. But when you introduce this alternative lens, 
what is so helpful is that it it helps people diffuse the self from the role and from that particular role relational context and so i had someone who recently um, came to me and said they were very upset they were very um really questioning them their own competence they felt like they had come from one context where they were thriving they were fully in their power so to speak in their language um, they felt like they had authority they knew what they were doing and then they've changed roles and they've come into another context and suddenly they feel incompetent they feel like they're operating from their smallest self um, their whole sense of self and confidence has fallen through the, the floor. And the whole meaning making is quite personal about them as an individual. But when they get this lens and they start to make sense of the sense making that's going on in relation to them and what's going on in the system, and they're able to step back from that and see the relatedness and the patterning and how they're connecting into the system, what that invites is a completely different meaning making about self, mm -hmm. which is less personal, which is less about me and actually pulls then enables her to kind of get pulled back into her sense of self, which is no longer, you know, I'm bad. I've done something wrong. I'm, um, I'm the problem here. Yeah. So I think what I'm saying is that as you help people make these subject object moves systemically and know that they are always in a context, in a system, in a role, and that that patterning is, has as much to do with who they are personally, that pulls people into a sort of more meta self where they can make sense of self in a more relational way. Yep. rather than it's purely about them as an individual and so a whole lot of the emotions that come from the meaning making about self can be sort of sidestepped somewhat and held in a completely different way yeah. because they're able to see self in system in role and so that kind of diffuses and de-triggers yep. a lot the kind of emotion that's happening so i think that this systemic work the subject object move actually helps a lot with making emotions more object and how emotions might be um, not 100 percent valid when you start to look at what's going on with a more systems lens yeah that makes so much sense and that kind of the, the question that pops up for me is so this this when people are over um feeling over responsible for things that can help lift take away some of that weight in a sense where you can actually realize oh it's not just about me i'm part of the system so then i get curious about that intersection what happens when people don't don't own their part in how they are impacting the system and maybe don't see their role in in putting some energy good or bad in the system um yeah how how does the awareness of that interrelatedness help with taking responsibility as well as letting go of too much responsibility so how do you balance that out mm. um 
you know obviously it's um it's a journey the work and i think the the thing is that you can't um you can't force people to make sense and meaning in a particular way you can only create the opportunities um through mapping through questions through um you know helping people learn to make sense in new ways through particular different scaffolds um but if the individual is just not ready or something is going on for them which um is precluding that then yeah you can only do what you can do um you can't force that i suppose um yeah i'm not sure i'm answering your question though well, I, I, I was thinking about a lot of instances where I've seen patterns of learned helplessness in organizations where people just feel it's all the system. The system is rigged. The system is bad. The system is making me like there's a lot of there's very little agency um, in how I'm part of the system, actually, or awareness that I'm part of the system. Yeah uh so so i'm all almost i think this comes back to that initial question that we 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 started with around where is the cross-pollination between working with the individual and taking a systemic perspective and how these two can can inform each other is there a point where the individual has to almost go you know own their contribution to whatever the system dynamic might be and in turn be aware that the dynamic itself plays a role in how they show up. So, so, yeah, I'm not sure if you have, I'm even, I'm even articulating the question properly. But there's there's something about it's not us. There's nothing. There's nothing we can do uh, that always stumps me as a facilitator. Uh, and and I've noticed it over the years working with more and more senior teams that it. It, it happens this pattern at every single level. You, you could be working with a board of an organization and they will have their own stories of powerlessness or helplessness or, you know, the system is <laughs> kind of limiting us. Yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued by how how do you work with those stories um, when, when they show up in, in this work? Yeah. I think that, um, diff you know, the answer is different in different contexts and depending on where people find themselves in the system and what the challenge is that they're facing. So um, there isn't sort of one way, but if, if I pick up on the, um, you know, the executive piece or the board piece, I, I was um, working recently with an executive team of an organization and I think they it, it's a it's a very large organization maybe um hundred thousand people in it and um I think the descriptions of the the executive team as I was working with them was oh you know this is ridiculous you know things are so inefficient here um the culture is so bureaucratic um, you know, it's almost impossible to get things done. Now, this was the executive team yeah. about the culture. And I just said to them, let's just pause. Yeah. And I said, you know, you are talking about the culture, 
as if it is something that exists passively independent of you. And there was so much um, laughter then in the room because there was this kind of immediate, obviously, there is a knowing at some level, there's an immediate recognition that that in some ways is a ridiculous idea because yeah. they, you know, my next kind of invitation was them to them was, you're the executive leadership team of this organization. You are describing the culture as if it exists independent of you, as if you're not it. And um, you are giving away so much of your agency, but also your responsibility. Yep. If no one else, who else except you yep. has more agency and ability to shift this? Yeah. So you called it out. You called absolutely. out the pattern. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, sometimes uh, it is just that because the system becomes so self-referential and the narratives and the, the ways, the language and the way the system of, you know, speaks of itself, um, and I'm talking about that subsystem of the exec team, um, I think that... Um, it's just a sort of provocation that's needed and an invitation to be able to kind of step back from how you're making sense here and how yep. you are separating yourself from the system. And just that as a kind of intervention opens up a whole new conversation, which it did, a whole new dialogue about their role as an executive team in maintaining the culture and an observation then of how not because they're bad not with bad intent but actually just neutrally how they are taking up a role which is maintaining and co-creating the emergent culture that they're getting yeah and and that opened of course up lots of um exciting possibility for how they could reframe their role step into a different role in the system and therefore have some um, impact in shifting the system that they were a part of versus yeah. changing the culture as if it was something that existed outside of them. Outside. And I, as, as you were talking, I almost had this light bulb kind of uh, pop up in my brain around what you were, you started with the role and asking people to map out those assumptions that might have been hidden that are actually informing how they engage in the system and whether this powerlessness that you might see at the very very senior levels is actually part of that map and i imagine that when people you make them aware of the map they'll start to see how the assumption that i you know i'm, I'm not creating this culture this culture is impeding me could potentially be one of those assumptions that are playing out under the surface yeah at the very least you know what what the ergonomics work does is help um parts of a system entities or subsystems see the patterning that they're in and how they are in role of co-creation in circularity of the pattern versus they are separate from it as if it existed outside of them and i think what's very important about this idea is that, um, you know, if we extend it out, we tend to separation as if, you know, um, this is why I talk about it as organizational ecology, because we tend not to see ourselves as e ecologically as part of 
a system. And even in um, you know, the wider ecology in which we operate, one of the biggest problems, I think, is that as humans, as a species, we have tended to separate ourselves from the ecologies in which we are embedded. It's exactly the same in organizational ecologies. People tend to separate themselves and not see themselves as an integral embedded part of the ecology that they are in, um, including executive teams. You know, I often ask this question, when I invite executive teams into doing this work and observing the system that they're in, um, and talking about sharing their hypotheses around how they're viewing the system, um, how they're making sense of it, and that they tend to talk about it as if they're not in it. 99.9% .9 of the time, Alice, I would say, the work begins with a description of what the problem is and the problem non-inclusive of self. And just making that move by saying, well, I notice that in your descriptions, you're not including self. That is one of the most essential moves because it, it's a move from separation into interdependence, Integra yeah. interconnectivity. And if you can make that move in one context, in your organizational context, my hope is that we can then help people make that move it jumps context, it can become transcontextual, which is why I think this, I'm so committed to doing this work in the context of organizations, because I think it doesn't reside and remain there. It can yeah. really become transcontextual and we need that move of out of separation from the system and the ecologies in which we're in into a deep understanding of interdependence with and interconnectivity with. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that that would actually fuel more responsibility for our role to the bigger picture and uh, an awareness of also the bigger picture itself? Yes, absolutely. That this idea that, you know, we are never not of the system. Yeah. And that doesn't make us bad or to blame or wrong. It is just an invitation to know often even with good intent, we are in system co-creation and maintenance. Yeah. But our sense-making may assume that we have no alternative to that, that we have to be in that role. So being able to kind of step back from that and just see that from a neutral place, not from a place of evaluation, not from a place of judgment, but just simply from a place of noticing from a mm -hmm. neutral noticing, that is an important move for us to make. Because I think often when I invite executive teams and leaders into this place, one of the other patterns that I notice is they don't include self, they don't tend to understand the role they're playing or even see self in role or self, I don't mean individual self either as an entity, like the exec team as an entity is playing a role. So the leadership system, so to speak. But I think the other really important thing is that um, they tend to do the, they step into the role as expert evaluator fixer and in judgment of. Um, and so the other really pattern we want to help people kind of step into or uh, sorry, step into or out of into a pattern of being able to observe 
and out of a pattern of judge, evaluator, fixer. Yeah. Which is you said the automatic like to... Sorry. Sorry, sorry, no, I interrupted you. You finish your thought. Well, I think that the automatic kind of expectation of role of leader is to the invitation is to be able to see the problem, diagnose it, um, yeah. analyze it, look for this, you know, what's the problem, what's the root cause, fix. That's and we invite leaders into the fixer, the solution provider, etc. And I think that's where organizations pull people developmentally into their more expert achiever selves rather than actually let's just observe how things are and what could be different which is a move and a pull for people into their more redefining discovery um you know self and then seeing what i can learn here what what can i learn about my own meaning making and how others are giving meaning and how mine connects to theirs and so this is an invitation in an organizational systemic sense which I believe will help provide the scaffold for people into this more redefining, transforming way of making sense. But yeah. it's not at the current time the invitation from most organizations of, of leaders. The invitation is much more into the expert achiever way of being. Yeah. Or I'm also noticing a bit of a schizophrenic pull at times. We want leaders to be very strategic and very capable to sense into the system, but also be the fixer and solve and put out the fires and potentially do both at the same time, which feels to me like, um, yeah, uh, th there's almost this noble, more post-conventional kind of intention, which is partly why adult development, I think, has become so popular as of late, where uh, you've got all of these, um, at times feels a bit like hype. We want everybody to operate from very late stages. But in actuality, the pool is towards the fixing and the solving. Um, and there's no sitting in just one worldview anyway. Um, so I, I think I feel like the, the way you go about this work really honors the messiness and the interdependencies between individual and system in a really beautiful way. And and also, I felt like you touched without actually naming them, but I'd love to name them because I feel like in, in the ergonomics methodology, you've got the 3R pathway, which I find so simple and so insightful, where you talk about rewiring, reframing, and repatterning. So you, you get to the repatterning, right? You, you create this conversation that actually challenges current worldviews and creates or invites people into new patterns. And then the question comes, how do you sustain that? knowing that the pool is towards maybe that fixer solver and it might not go away after a really insightful workshop or piece of work or project how how do you create that sustainability of of this more integrative energy in an organization and this inquiry that you're kickstarting with the work that you're doing yeah i think um i think that's really important that you know, with the three R's, I think the first invitation is what I mean by rewiring is the invitation to leaders and everyone in an organization to go, you know, our preponderance is towards analytical um, thinking and that there's this alternative way of seeing and to provide the 
kind of understanding of what's different about that and some practices where they can try that on. And not to say that there's um, all analytical thinking is bad. It's actually saying, actually, here you can hold and see more spaciously. Um, you've got more choice because you can look at it through this analytical lens, but you can also look at it through this more systemic interconnected lens. So that's sort of one pathway, so to speak, mm -hmm. to open new neural pathways um, around how you make sense of um, situations. And I'm often saying, well, if you looked at this analytically, it might look like this, but what if you looked at this through a more systemic um, sense-making, what would it be? So it's inviting into this kind of and alternative possibility, the adjacency. I think the patterning um, is I provide scaffold for people to see that pattern is relational. It's not just about repeated pattern, but it is about how different parts are taking up roles in relation to each other and the patterning that has come to be. Again, not in judgment, but in, in an ability to kind of stand back from that. And the important thing with the repatterning is that the, when I, what I introduce to leaders is this idea that a system is never standing still. A system that is alive with vitality is in continuous reorganization, even if it is towards homeostasis. So you want to be able to see the pattern of interrelationship between the parts. And what are the practices that allow you to do that? So some of them are um, that when they come together as a leadership team, long after I've left, what I'm giving them is some scaffold to do it, but they would include that practice in their um, monthly or weekly meetings. They may include it in what I call kind of growth edge sessions for the system where they come together every eight to 12 weeks to uncover and discover the patterning and to talk about how it could be different. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole lot of wiring in um, new practices, new patterns, which are adaptive, which are um, give this leadership teams the language and some of the practice which allow them to be in continuous viewing of themselves. Yeah. So you give them a scaffold for actually maintaining and, and being or doing this work long term. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it would possibly begin with me being in the room, providing that being the kind of systemic um, coach or, you know, nudger and often, you know, um, intervening in the system, helping kind of um explore and put forward alternative possibility but you know over time this is a practice that leaders must embed in their ways of being for themselves um yeah but you know if there aren't those practices which are just the fast kind of practices embedded in organizations we need to offer them in in yep. order to create the spaces for for that and you know i think it's another way for us to create deliberately developmental organizations without us actually speaking about doing that at an individual level. Yeah. It's about creating contexts where individuals collectively are invited into an ability to step back and hold as object yeah. themselves in relation to others. This uh, speaks to a question that I hold, and it's a bit of an obsessive question uh, that sounds so weird when I say it. I keep asking myself, how can I make myself redundant? <laughs> it's 
so my clients don't need me that that is a I think in my in my worldview it's a really great measure of success um and I feel that's a very tricky it's a tricky proposition because I always wonder what what helps change stick um and also speaks a little bit about you as a practitioner and your willingness to let go of work and and really um support your clients to do the work without you so that's maybe in itself perhaps a different conversation but on this on this question of what what helps change stick what i'm hearing you say is practices help change stick practices that become embedded in the way teams and the organization itself works that help help the system continue to witness itself way beyond the moment you've left it mm -hmm. what helps people you know continue to practice those practices are there other elements that you've noticed in your work with organizations that you know help and support this ongoing um deliberately developmental energy to continue playing out um yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think more and more what I'm learning is and what I'm working on more and more is what do those scaffolds look like? Yeah. What are the sets of questions that we can leave behind? What is the um, the language that we or the frameworks that we can leave behind? Um, and so I think this is a kind of growth edge for me and my work, Alice, a beautiful question. I, I think historically, a lot of my work has been much more to go in and help leaders and, and organizational systems repattern themselves and reorganize themselves and bring about the adaptive shifts that they need to make for them to thrive and be successful. More and more, as this work grows and the need for it grows because you know the adaptive requirements is exponential the complexity um, complex challenges that organizations are facing are exponential and also the nature of the form organizations are taking are much more complex so in in many ways the challenge now is how do we create organizations that are less reliant <laughs> on consultants and coaches and more self-reliant that we actually build these in to the organization the challenge for me is what is those what are those scaffolds look like what yeah. do i need to leave behind that um you know they can do more and more of this work themselves and one of the things that is emerging which i'm working on is some of these frameworks which you're referring to which are kind of useful guardrails or enabling constraints, I think I would talk about them as, you know, which help people do the work or look at the organizational systems that they're in through these lenses. So the three R's, the rolling system triangle um, that, you know, Irving Borwick first um, developed, you know, how to kind of make that more practical, you know, that there are some scaffold and toolkits around language which help a system become object to itself and um, what are some of the questions and the tools and the practices so there is a whole body of work which i think we need to create which is going to enable organizations to be able to make these moves and to embed these um, systemic adaptive practices in 
into the organization mm. kind of um i want to say dna but i don't think dna is the right word because in some ways that kind of assumes talking about the organization as if it were a living human entity which it's not yeah it's not um, but you know into its sort of patterning so that it can um, become a more self-reflective learning system, I think is the goal, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think enough um, scaffold exists. I think there is a requirement for us more and more to emerge what this body of um, work looks like to enable this way forward. Yeah. I. This also makes me think of who the people are who, and I know ideally the whole organization should be the holder of, of this kind of ongoing process of self-awareness. In in my own experience, there usually are certain people who seem to be like the, the holders, the reminders, the truth tellers, they're like, you know, guys, we're kind of let's let's get back to this practice. Um, so I often wonder, you know, what role do key people in the organization who believe in the value of this way of seeing the, the world uh, or in the value of holding on to practices of inquiry of of collective inquiry in the long run how how yeah how do we find those people how do we support them if we think you might not share this view that they that those people are important to have yeah i mean i i, I think that's a very very important question and i of course i would come back to this idea of role because yeah. I think one one of the most important ways that we can enable this work to stick in organizations is to invite leaders and leadership teams into seeing it as their role. As their work. work. As, as yeah. the work. Yep. And so the very, a very critical part of the ergonomics um, theory and practice is this idea that role drives behavior. That our behavior emerges from who we are but our behavior also emerges from our sense of role in context in system. If I, you know, if I'm in role of partner in my system of marriage in that context, I behave in a particular way. If I um, go down the hall and engage with my children um, and I step into role of parent and I'm engaging parent to child, my behavior changes instantly. Um, if I engage with my mother who might be visiting from South Africa and I'm in that contextual and in that system of relations, my behavior changes because I'm in role of child and the system of relations shifts my behavior. I think it's really critical to understand that if we are going to have, um, you know, a growth of this work, what we need to invite leaders into <laughs> is to see that this is a, a vital role that they have to play in their organizational context. And as much as their role is to be experts and leading people, actually their role is as important to be system leaders in the sense of creating the conditions for the system to be able to observe itself, to enable to shift itself. Yep. And what I'm calling actually inviting leaders into role of organizational ecologists. And to know that this is as important a role that they hold as kind of, um, you know, meeting shareholder returns or that this is a role that they need to occupy if they are going to help the organizations thrive, 
now and into the future. So it's a role not to rely on finding the people, but actually paradoxically gifting that role and helping leaders understand that that's a role that they are have as an imperative. Yeah. Not only leaders, HR as well, or PNC teams, you know, um, often I'm working with them and there's such a pull from PNC teams to be focusing on people, um, on, on what makes them up and what makes them tick and, you know, addressing individual challenges. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, with not bad intent, they pull the system out of a systemic adaptive pattern. Um, and so the invitation also is to PNC practitioners and PNC teams to kind of step into this role of creating the conditions to see for organizational systems and organizational ecologies to be seen, to be able to adapt and shift themselves. And that role is quite a different role. And if people don't see it as their role, if leaders and other teams don't see it as their role and as a vital part of the the daily work, um, then I think we'll be less successful. But if we can help leaders and PNC teams and organizational um, consultants as well, know that this is work that is required for organizations to thrive now and into the future, then I think we've got more chance of people being curious about, oh, if I were to occupy that role, which I know is mine, how would I do that? Yeah. So it's not something we're pushing in, but there's a, you know, an invitation and a curiosity and an imperative to learn how to do that. Yeah. This lights me up hearing you say this because I I deeply, deeply believe that we can't really change anyone and anything without having that awareness that it is me. I, I am the work in a sense, if I'm a leader in that system. And I, 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 I also am aware of how daunting that idea is because, um, and I remember um, a leader from a government organization recently said, you know, what, what are we going to do? Like all of us are going to become facilitators and psychologists and therapists. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> But, and uh, there is an element of becoming, actually, I believe that is implied in what you're saying, where you do take on a bit of a role of a facilitator and inquirer and, and you know, perspective holder or inviting other people to hold perspective that might not be part of your job description in your yeah. actual business role. Um, yeah. And I, I just want to say that it's definitely, we are definitely not inviting leaders into no. role of therapist. <laughs> Neither are we, you know, in, in some ways, I think paradoxically, we have to give up this idea that this work is about doing therapy at an interpersonal, at a personal level. level. It's actually paradoxical to that. It is about helping people um, not change themselves, but step into a different role systemically systemically and that actually you can change role in system and change behavior with much more ease with much more speed actually and um with much more i think ethical integrity than trying to change people you can create the conditions where people can seek to change themselves and i think that is a much more important idea we can reframe people's roles in system 
with more integrity and offer that as an alternative possibility. And I want to say that that's an important distinction with mm-hmm. this work. And um, because then then vertical development, in a sense, at the individual level emerges as an outcome of you creating the right conditions in the system for people to be able to grow individually. Right. And absolutely. And I think if we go in with this kind of higher than that idea, that it's our role to grow people developmentally, um, in some ways, we are actually putting breaks into the system. But yep. if we see our role, as creating the contexts and the systems in which growth can occur, actually growth occurs um, through contextual means anyway, naturally. So maybe the work much more is to create the possibilities, the conditions, the context in which growth can occur. Um, And, you know, either at the system level or at the individual Individual. level. it's for the individual to do their own growing and their own fitting in um, than it is some kind of elitist idea that, you know, we can in some way have to grow people vertically up some continuum in some teleological um, way, yes. which you know, is, I think, deeply deeply problematic right deeply problematic and i i I know this was the first almost thing we we jumped into before we started this recording that um uh, for developmental work and systems work to actually both contribute to shifting organizations in a positive direction we might need to let go of some of these limiting assumptions and this is one that you do something to people to grow them and and in even in listening to you, what comes up for me is, and it's from a from a different space, but I think very related in in spirit, is Mar- Maria Montessori. Um, uh, she had this idea that individuals have a. She called her, she called it Horme, the life force of growth of development, and the whole Mont- Montessori educational system. Which I'm a, pa- a parent of a Montessori kid and perpetually fascinated by what we can learn from that space that can be taken in organizations. The whole idea was how do you create a school where the natural capacity of children to develop is unleashed by the context? So the the whole work of that system is actually how do teachers get out of the way intelligently, meaningfully, intentionally in a way where kids can actually thrive. So Perhaps if I connect this back to you, to what you were saying is how do we actually learn to get out of the way and stop intervening in a, in, a, in, in pushing or pulling and actually become more of gardeners, like gardeners creating a, a thriving, a context where people can thrive and that natural unfolding of growth can happen, do what it does when you let it unfold rather than put barriers to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, absolutely critical. And I think it's it's a critical kind of question around where the individual and the organization intersect come together. And yep. yeah, rather do um, you know, work at the system level and create the conditions for the system itself to become a self-reflective um, learning system. And that will create the conditions and the pool, I believe, for individuals to grow as well. Yeah, um, I think the beautiful thing about that as well, Alice, is the idea that if we try and change people, um, first of all, that's very hard to do. But secondly, one individual at a time 
um, you know, we, we cannot scale the work. There's only so much you can do. <laughs> no, there's only like the constraint that that kind of, you know, assumes um, is limit, you know, so limiting that that constraint that is built into that set of assumptions. But yeah. if we can create organizations which are context for growth and context for self-reflection at a system level, then I think the ability for scale for individuals and adults to grow um, is exponential. Is exponential yeah. in so many ways, you know. So yep. I think in practically um, it invites less resistance. Practically, it invites more opportunity. And you know, if it sits, if we hold a systemic assumption that the system patterning, the practices in a system are influential in people's individual behavior as much as who people are and what they're made of, then I think, and I deeply hold that assumption, then I think that, you know, that invites again, further more so that we create the systemic conditions, yeah. um, which invite people into new ways of thinking, new ways of being. Um, and I think that is less reliant on having to change individuals. Individuals. And, I think one piece that's really important about this work that I think we need, is useful to introduce is that subsystems or entities, if we tend to see organizations as ecologies or ecosystems, um, they tend to form self-organizing to subsystems or entities. And what do I mean by that? The, an exec team is a subsystem, HR might be one, etc. And a lot of where the boundaries are drawn are arbitrary, but they are necessary boundaries um, in order for the system to kind of be in flow. And I think what's important about that is that subsystems or entities take on roles as much as individuals. And that if we it's a fractal, right? It, there is a bit of a fractal nature to it, the system and yes. the subsystem, and then the individual themselves and going up and down. Yeah, and a subsystem could be a subsystem of two, of a two. relational kind of contract between a CEO and the, a member of their team or a CEO and a chair. That is a subsystem and that relational entity has enormous impact. Patterning um, yep. there has enormous impact on the wider. But a subsystem could also be an exec team. And why I'm introducing this idea is that I think it's not just individual leaders that we are inviting into this role. We're inviting executive teams, leadership teams, boards into taking up this role as well. Yeah. And as a collective, are, as a subsystem, taking on a certain role in the system. Absolutely. Yeah. And I believe that that is extremely helpful as well, because it's less reliant on individuals having to take that on their shoulders alone. Yep. But actually we can help leadership teams as subsystems or entities or leadership systems, you know, extended leadership teams, exec teams, boards as the leadership and governance system hold that as a role that they occupy as a leadership system. Yeah. Then that doing this work becomes even more um, easeful and powerful because it's embedded in the practice of the system, the leadership system, rather than relying on individuals um, yep. to take that on individually. 
I think I think I've uh, I've just uh, actually had a I have a very concrete example of what you're describing where actually all of these dimensions seem to interplay. I'm I'm working with the CEO uh, of a publicly listed company who's his company that he's grown to that point. So he's been on this journey as an entrepreneur and now the CEO and in a kind of a new role of holding a publicly listed entity. And he's, this individual has gone through a really transformative time in his own life through some really, really hard personal challenges that have sh- have made him question a lot of the assumptions he was making individually. So nobody pushed him in, into a growth journey. Life pushed him. Um, and in a recent conversation, he was thinking about, you know, his relationship with his board and how that subsystem is actually now impacting the culture of a company in a way that he's starting to question. So it just made me think that is just such a beautiful if you if you look at all of these dimensions and stop trying to pick one as the thing to solely work on exclusively and go no this is the only lever you start to see the intersections um where you know individual reflection actually leads to more awareness of the system and then the subsystem in this case executive team and board kind of working together then start to impact the broader system and vice versa. So I think there's a lot to be said about just being curious and noticing our own attachments to just one angle, one way, one entry point uh, into this work. Yeah. I think that, you know, what you're describing is a beautiful example of the work because what is becoming visible to the CEO, it seems to me, is that the role that the board may have played historically in one context um, that he in some ways might have contracted for, has the system and the context has changed and his map of the role of the board has shifted, but the board has not made that shift themselves. And so there's incoherence in the system, which is having an impact. Um, on what emergent culture you're getting. All of that is kind of systemic description, yep. which is starting to become visible. Yep. And, you know, the minute that this becomes visible, then you can kind of look for where is my map incoherent with the maps of the members of the board or the board as an entity? And then how do I intervene to repattern this relational system? Um, such a great example. So maybe this is a good point in the conversation to address uh, a bit of what might be a bit of an elephant in the room uh, in the adult development and uh, systems space where it almost feels at times that practitioners in these two spaces hold to their space, individual perspective or the systems perspective as the thing. And um, I, I know what brought us together in, in curiosity in this conversation to begin with is that we both, I believe, share the view that there's a lot to learn from the other perspective. So um, in my example with my client, there's an individual, there's a, there's a team subsystem and system perspective. And I'm curious, you, you hold and do a lot of work in the systems perspective. What's the role you see for the individual work? How yeah. do you see that intersection? Yeah, absolutely critical. And I think that, you know, um, sometimes because a lot of the focus 
in development is often on the individual, I tend to kind of pull more into mm. emphasizing the systemic. And I think obviously there is a critical place to work both with individuals and with the system and the individual in relationship to the system. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing and I think is very important to do is also working with individuals in their role, in the context in which they're in, helping them make sense of their own meaning making and where um, they see themselves in relation to others in the system and being able to make that object, subject, object move themselves. So it is critical to be working at a multiplicity of levels and in multiple ways, both at the individual level, at the subsystem level, at interrelationship between subsystems, at the whole organizational level, and knowing that it's very important to be helping individuals make the move, but also doing these moves at, you know, other in other parts of, of the system. So um, sometimes it may come across that there is a invalidation of the mm -hmm. individual work, but it is absolutely an and. And I think it's really critical to create spaces for individuals to be able to do that work themselves and, yeah. um, you know, being able to provide support and scaffolds to individuals to do that simultaneously is absolutely critical. Yeah, this almost makes me makes me wonder, and I know there are a lot of practitioners listening to this podcast who might be in different spaces and doing different types of work, maybe facilitation, maybe internal um, learning and development or coaching. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question for us as practitioners that emerges from what you've just said. What is the map? So if I were to draw my own role map in how I see the role that I play for my clients... Beautiful. What 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 would be the energies that show up in that map? Is there something I'm missing? Um, and I know I know for a, a long time a lot of my work has been focused on the individual, and as time has gone by, I've opened up more curiously to whoa, this individual is not in isolation, and how can I, as a practitioner, learn more about the system and how the system plays a role? So it's it's interesting to reflect on what our own blind spots might be that fuel our allegiance to just one <laughs> one angle. So thank you for you know holding both. Um, it's it's a great invitation for reflection for myself and hopefully others too. Yeah, beautiful. I love what you're saying, and I think being able to step back from our own maps as consultants and coaches, and uh, you're reminding me of a. Um, something Irving said early on to me, which I often quote, which is, um, you know, leaders and ourselves, we tend to solve the problems we know how to solve. And, you know, we become our own constraint. If we think our role is purely to work with individuals, then we kind of tend to miss the system. But if we think our role is to work with the system, we may tend to miss the individual. So um, I think it's really beautiful to kind of continually hold um, the and in the space and to be able to bring the and into the work and not to kind of over um, index on either one. And, uh, you know, I'm very aware of my, myself trying to, you know, not overly compensate for the individual emphasis by kind of leaving out the importance of working at the individual level as well. Yeah. So thank you for that, Alice. Really important.
Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like we could be talking for many more hours, and we've you've pulled so many beautiful threads and opened up so much reflection for me, Joan. And I'm sure that'll be something that a, a lot of the people listening will be thinking about, and they'll probably take. I, I'm always curious and invite people to comment when they you know listen to the episode and kind of go, where did your attention go, and how does that connect with your reality? Um, as we come to a close, I'd like to ask you, you did touch on it, but I'd love to know, you know, what is the fire in your belly around this work? You've, you know, this is your life's work. You've, you've spent so much time building it and refining it and progressing it. What's, what's driving you to do this work? What's your hope for it going forward? Um, that's Beautiful question. I think there are many things. I, I think when I first got the glasses, um, this understanding of um, being able to see organizations as complex systems um, and myself in it, it, and also myself in my family system at that time, and the role that I was playing and the pattern that I'd been caught in, that was so liberating for me on so many levels, both professionally and personally. And since I've been doing this work for the last 30 years, I get that consistent feedback around how liberating it is, you know, helping individuals and teams and organizational systems break out of their self-limiting constraints um, and how they've come to be and the possibilities that that emerges. So on a personal level, on a professional level, knowing how um, deeply liberating that can be is the fire. But I think there is a bigger piece, which is around, you know, the the increasing complexity we are creating in our organizations with digital where, you know, there is more and more requirement for people to be managing complex self as complexity, self in complexity, no longer in one job, but in a multiplicity of roles. And I think the wider context of the complex adaptive challenges we face with climate, with um, you know, generative AI, with post-pandemic reintegration of you know, living in a networked world without being physically present to each other, all of those are requiring much more of us and much more of this work. And so I feel some um, anxiety almost to kind of put this work out in the world more and more so that we can actually address some of these big adaptive challenges we face. And I think that organizations offer us what I learned early on. My first learning was that organizations offer us the context and the domains in which we can grow into this. And so um, I just want to do this more and more and provide more and more scaffold for leaders and organizations to be able to learn their way into this way of being yeah i love that and uh that deeply resonates uh with my own drives <laughs> for being in this work in the first place and i'm so grateful for you joan in the world and for your wisdom Thank and you. for your curiosity to reach across the aisle uh and 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 cross-pollinate and explore what those cross-pollinations might look like. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom and courage in holding your own work lightly. And I think uh, that's something I, I watch you do and I learn from. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. And maybe I'll just close to say this, that our 
I think one of our deepest challenges as a species is that we don't hold ourselves in interdependence and interconnectivity and both with um, the ecology in which we're in and in relation to each other. And so I guess the higher purpose with all of our work needs to build that deep relational interdependence that I think will be um, really important scaffold for all of us um, and our whole ecology. So um, yeah, I think that's essential work for all of us to be doing individually and collectively. Yeah, and and if I hear what you're saying uh, under the words is also, can we do this in the research and consulting space as well as the, in the organizations that we are working with? Um, which for me is such an exciting prospect, or I may be projecting my own hopes here <laughs> into your previous share. But I think I think there's a lot to learn from um, from the different angles with which we're approaching this type of work. Um, and the more of these dialogues we have, the more enriched I think I believe we can all be. So yeah. I'm deeply, deeply grateful for the opportunity to have this dialogue with you, Joan. Yeah, I'm deeply grateful too to have this conversation. Thank you, Alice. And yeah, cheekily, I want to say that yeah. more and more I've been talking at conferences of uh, change management and things like that, because I think in some ways we need to disrupt the field. So um, <laughs> we need to build this alternative possibility to um, our toolkit that is out there. Amen to that. <laughs> Thank you, Joan, so much. Thank you. Thank you for your beautiful work and this podcast opportunity. Thanks. Wow, this has been such a rich conversation. My brain is still buzzing from the perspectives Joan has raised and, in fact, we found ourselves continuing the conversation a good while after we stopped recording. One thing we were reflecting in our dialogue afterwards was how interesting it is it gets so easy to favor one perspective, individual or system over the other. Even for practitioners who do a lot of work in both spaces, our preferences, our intellectual lens, our history easily seems to pull us in one direction or another. So that effort to really hold the whole polarity in our awareness is constant work for all of us. For myself, I notice my passion for mining the depths of the human mind and my almost inherent leaning towards exploring individual mindsets. I also reflect on how this preference is linked to my own history, Growing up in a highly individualistic society where some of the prevalent beliefs were that success is a function of individual effort or that you could not really trust or rely on other people and often the system, meaning the social political system, was an enemy to fight against. So in a sense, you, the individual, would be better off not considering yourself part of the system. So paradoxically, it was the system I was embedded in that shaped my views around how interesting individual development actually is. I notice how in my own practice I have to actively step back from these entrenched mindsets to shift my awareness towards the collective, to notice what happens between people, not just within them. I have a lot to learn about how systems work and talking to experts such as Joan is such an enriching and thought-provoking space for me to be in. 
I also wonder how others who might have grown up in more collectivistic or community-oriented cultures might have a completely different awareness of their belonging to a system or the interdependencies they are part of. I wonder how experts who study systems and focus all their research and practice on working at the collective level might in turn grow from staying curious about individual experiences of growth and change. I also wonder, more broadly, how we might foster more dialogue between what often seems like two camps, advocates for individual-focused approaches to growth versus advocates for systems approaches. Leaning towards each other rather than away from or against each other might just be a developmental step in itself for all of us. The conversation with Joan also led me to reflect on the systems I myself am embedded in, the roles I play in my family system, in my work, but also as a member of a broader community of practice and research. I'm very curious how our conversation has landed with you. What does your role map look like? What are you noticing about your own leanings within this polarity of individual versus and system? What personal reflection questions has this dialogue sparked? If you're listening to this on one of the podcasting apps, please go to the episode page on our substack at verticaldevelopment.education and share your comments. I'd love to engage in a broader conversation we can all learn from. I hope this was fun and interesting and stimulating. Um, and until next time, I hope you stay curious, conscious and wise.